0: Well, welcome to Picked Voices, the interview series conducted by the faculty of the Paris Institute for Critical Thinking with notable members of the broader PICT community. Our goal is to present our community with a variety of voices across the spectrum of the humanities and critical creative thinking. My name is Christophe van Houten and today it is my honor and pleasure to be joined by Nadine Strossen. Emeritus John Marshall Harlan, second professor of law at New York Law School and former president of the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, Nadine, and welcome.
1: Hello, Kristoff. Thank you so much for hosting this conversation.
0: My pleasure. Now, the origins of this podcast lies in the decision by some social media platforms to temporarily suspend or even ban the former president of the USA. The decision by these private companies touches on many aspects we will hopefully discuss. Censorship, free speech, the US's First Amendment, and Europe's different free speech laws. All things you so wonderfully explained, Nadine, in your excellent 2018 book, Hate, why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship, to which you recently added a new epilogue that specifically holds still with how all this applies to social media. But before we get into all of this, to make sure that there are no misunderstandings, could you maybe first explain a little bit the basics of American free speech free speech laws and how these differ from some of the non-American ones?
1: Absolutely. And I do teach an entire course on just US free speech law. So I am going to have to engage in radical self-censorship, Christoph, uh, to make a very complicated subject very brief. But uh, first of all, most people exaggerate the extent to which US free speech law under the First Amendment to our Constitution uh, absolutely protects free speech. It does not. It draws a sensible distinction between when government may restrict speech and for what reasons and when government may not and what reasons are impermissible. The United States Supreme Court has summarized all of this by pointing to what it has called the bedrock principle of our free speech jurisprudence, which it calls content neutrality or viewpoint neutrality. Government must remain neutral to the content, the views, the message, the idea of the speech. No matter how despicable or controversial or unpopular that message or viewpoint might be, that is never a justification for censoring it. Rather, government may only restrict speech in the particular circumstances when speech directly causes or threatens certain specific, serious, imminent harm, and the speech restriction is necessary in order to avert that harm. That is often summarized as the emergency principle. And I think this makes great good sense, Christoph, because it it allows government to punish speech when speech causes the most danger right when it poses mm-hmm. an emergency on the other hand it prohibits censorship when censorship is likely to cause the most danger namely when government is disfavoring certain ideas viewpoints or speakers
0: mm. and how does it, how does this differ to many of the non-american uh, speech laws in in, a, in in a short in maybe in a minute or two
1: i'll try
0: <laughs> if that's possible
1: um, are, uh, many many other countries including western european democracies um do not insist on that tight and direct causal connection between speech and harm when specifically when it comes to so-called hate speech a speech that conveys hateful ideas on the basis of identity characteristics such as race religion and so forth uh, many countries including france allow that to be punished specifically because of a disfavored viewpoint or idea
0: okay thanks now let us first turn to and get rid of the elephant in the room, Trump and his banning. Now, if I got it right, and I for my thoughts here reading your book, so if I got it right and if bad tendency, namely that an expression might lead to cause him harm in the future is no longer the carrying principle for impeding free speech in the US, but that this has just become like you just said, the emergency principle, namely that something will need almost immediate cause, co- will immediately cause harm, then basically Trump's banning from social media platforms is totally unafforded. If not even, and here I quote you, it is in violation of fundamental free speech principles under both US and international law. At least, and I think this is something that needs to be said, at least if those social, social media platforms weren't private companies who, who can, because of their own First Amendment rights, decide which voices and messages they will and will not air. Did I get this right? And if I did, and I just love these types of irony, irony, what can be done?
1: very hard to answer this one in one minute. Uh, you summarize no, you, have,
0: you have more than one minute now.
1: Oh, thank you. You summarize this, this situation extremely well, Christoph, that there is no doubt that uh, the US government would not be able to punish a speech by Trump among other things, the US Supreme Court has said speech by public officials or about public officials uh, or other public controversies is the most important and deserves the highest degree of protection not only because freedom of speech protects Trump's right to convey his messages, but also freedom of speech entails the right of the rest of us who choose to, to hear those messages, including his opponents who want to hear them so that they can refute them and and denounce them. So this kind of speech, and the European Court of Human Rights has has agreed with this principle, um, speech that is by public officials is deserving of special protection because it is so essential to the process of democracy as well as to individual liberty. That said, there's a countervailing concern, which speech by such influential leaders can cause more damage, right, because of the reach and influence of their their speech. So as a free speech defender for private sector companies, uh, which are protected under the U.S. Constitution uh, and under international law as well, I would be very leery of a government regulation that prohibited social media giants from uh, making their own editorial decisions decisions in effect, but I think we have to look for other means to constrain this power, which really does have an adverse impact on free speech and democratic discourse.
0: Any thoughts on this?
1: Yes, I have a a lot of thoughts, but they're kind of tentative, and most people who think about this say say the same thing. Uh, It's so complicated that we have to proceed very carefully. Mm -hmm. One regime uh, of potential regulatory responses, which we've seen in Europe and in the United States, is antitrust and Mm pro-competition measures that would uh, reduce the market power, the power over not only the economic marketplace, but the proverbial marketplace of ideas and reduce barriers to entry so that we would have competition. We would have different platforms that would have different content moderation policies. Um, In the same vein, even some conservative libertarian anti-regulatory experts in the United States uh, very recently in the wake of the Trump de-platforming have been changing their tune and saying, well, maybe at least a couple of the giants like Facebook and Google, uh, wield so much power and are so essential in our contemporary world that we ought to treat them as essential infrastructure. In other words, public utilities or common carriers, such as the landline telephones a century ago, uh, that ought to be required to treat all users in a fair, reasonable, and non discriminatory manner. I think there are problems with, with these potential solutions, but I think they, they definitely need to be explored. On the procedural level, at the very least in terms of protecting uh, consumer rights uh, and privacy, I think that it would be completely appropriate to seriously consider requiring much more robust transparency and notice and accountability requirements on the part of these companies. They are very very, very opaque in their using, first of all, in their pervasive surveillance of all of us and using that surveillance to micro-target the material that we get in ways that we're not even aware of, let alone consent to. Uh, So we are being manipulated. Rather than exercising freedom of choice, which is the essence of individual liberty, including free speech, uh, we are being deprived of choices. And so I think Regulations to, to deal with these problems and to require uh, informed, meaningful opt-in consent before there is any such pr- uh, surveillance or micro-targeting would be appropriate regulations.
0: Mm. Okay, uh, to stay one more minute in the glass palace with our elephant and your your book offers a substantial number of examples and research-based evidence that makes it clear that the type of censoring that took place a couple of weeks ago not only does not work but even has adverse effects and that the algorithms and bans used by social media to supposedly protect against hate and other abusive forms of speech actually confirm the racist and minority adverse bias so what do you think unleashes uh, or unleashed these sudden and very late acts of moral gallantry? Is it pure and probably soon also to backfire politics by these social media platforms, as some more cynical minds have suggested? And if it were politics, then it no longer is a private matter, but a public one. And then the ban again should no longer stand solid as they would again go against the First Amendment. So what do you think unleashed this 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 morality?
1: I partly agree and I partly disagree with your analysis, Kristoff. The mm-hmm. fact that there is political pressure uh, that would, for reasons of political ideology, maybe I misunderstood you, uh, because they want to be on the side of Democrats who are now ascending into power, uh, that the social media companies therefore become less compliant with conservatives, including Donald Trump. That's one uh interpretation that many people have been offering, and I I thought I heard you offering uh, that potential interpretation, but there's a related sense in which the political pressure really does raise the possibility of a First Amendment issue here, and that is to the extent that these supposedly voluntary actions, kicking off Trump and ramping up their restrictions on disinformation and so forth, to the extent those were not really voluntary, but were in reaction to enormous political pressure and veiled threats and sometimes not so veiled threats from government officials that if you don't do more to take down this kind of speech we are going to force you to do it mm. through legislation that means that the government is trying to uh if you will launder its power its censorial actions by delegating them to private sector entities much the way has happened in europe in germany and france there were efforts to do this and uh there was a lot of objection to that the government can't delegate its lawmaking and censorial power to these private sector companies so I think there is a potential First Amendment problem there
0: yeah okay no my point was not that they took sides but that they they they, they became um, uh, politicized through morals so that that was my, mainly my a point. Much no, more
1: sophisticated but... point thank you
0: um, But enough Trump and politics. Now, as the editor of the series in which your latest book appeared, uh, Jeffrey Stone, he called you the devil's advocate. And as that is generally my job here, I think uh, I kind of liked the idea of playing your client for a bit and see if you will defend my cause till the better end.
1: And I'll defend you pro bono without... Okay, (laughs) that's
0: good. (laughs) Yeah, I I would need that, so that's a good thing to know. Now, you insist on the importance of uh, counter-speech. Hate speech, that is the speech that is not already countered by the First Amendment in the US, should not be censored, you say, but should be fought by counter-speech, by argued and reasoned counter-speech, because merely rambling will obviously not help. And I can see the merit of this, obviously. I, however, have always been intrigued by silence in in general, but maybe especially in the combination with politics. And and already in the Iliad, for example, there is this preference for political silence. And in more recent times, also several uh, more contemporary philosophers, starting from Rousseau going over Deleuze, they have spoken out in favor of this combination of silence and politics. And they were writing long before the social media explosion where every possible opinion can be shared and will find some supporters. And the wackiest will obviously will be the loudest. Now, should one really give these these wackiest ideas the merit of counter speech? Wouldn't it be better to pass them over in silence as these studies by Leeds that you also refer to in your book seems to hint at? Or should we simply silence them? as today's cancel culture seems to be heading towards, and how scared it is that they seem to be having read their Deleuze so very profoundly. (laughs) Now, I am aware that I am not particularly being the devil that Jeffrey Stone imagined here, but isn't this surprisingly not exactly what the devil should do? So how would you try to defend me here that silence might be a better uh, means than counter-speech?
1: I think it is a brilliant argument. And in fact, the term counter speech, uh, which is not a very descriptive term, but it it does intend to extend to the decision to be silent in response to, for example, racist speech. Basically, what it means is we should use our own right to free speech, which means a right not only to choose to speak, but also a right to choose to listen or to ignore. And, you know, you have to make a strategic decision in every situation. What is the most, what is your goal, number one, and number two, how do you best accomplish it? But experts encountering racist extremism have often advised that the most effective strategy is don't try to shut them down don't try to shout them down don't mm. try to de-platform them that just feeds into their desire to get more attention and more sympathy mm. that the most effective thing you can do to the hate mongers is to ignore them
0: mm. yeah no I, I agree also because if, if if you respond by by vocally engaging with them i think they immediately go into the victim position of the, the position of the victim and, and they show like this because then they, they can come out victoriously and even morally above the other people. I think.
1: Exactly and and I do have to say Christoph I am so moved by many accounts of um, even former leaders of hate monger organizations who have been and the, the term they use redeemed and have now become crusaders to recruit other people away from those movements and the strategy that works is not to treat their speech as as a crime, as is done in in, in European mm. countries, uh, not not to use cancel culture or to stigmatize or demonize them, but rather to patiently and compassionately engage with them, mm. to listen to them. Uh, I don't have the time or the temperament to do this, but <laughs> I'm so respectful mm. of many other people who have mm. and who have succeeded.
0: Mm. Yeah, maybe that's not our job, but their job, because they started or they were part of the movement. So they probably also know how better to tackle it. Now, one final devilish remark. Uh, Speech laws reduce the problem of language to the problem of manichaeism, of being either good or bad. But isn't everything, isn't it reductive to say that everything can be reduced to simply good or bad? And, And I especially think here of speech. For example, is speech, viol- is speech violent or is it violence? Can it even be violence? It certainly isn't physical violence, but there is no patent on physicality with violence. So, what is it? And if we can't say that it isn't also simple, could we not also add that not all sen- censorship is simply bad? We today certainly have a negative view of this word, but that negativity can't be maintained historically. The, the positive seal of the censor like it was used in the past was also used in a very, very positive way. So here, Leo Strauss, uh, who tried to convince us that uh, all the censors were uh, cultural twits, that they couldn't read the book decently, is proven wrong. If we look at history, censorship has a very positive and a v- at certain moments, obviously, has a certain positive and constructive aspect as well. So how would you react to this uh, double question of mine I I agree with
1: both facets of the point that you've made that that speech is not binary you know good or bad and the Mm. same is true for censorship and I agree censorship is a stigmatizing term so why don't we substitute uh, another term such as selection Mm -hmm. um uh, editing Mm -hmm. curating Um, Self-censorship is also not so negative. Basically, uh, when somebody decides what speech is worthy, important, uh, positive, worth listening to, worth including, for example, in your terrific podcast. I would not say you are censoring the infinite number of people who would love to be on it but have not been invited, uh, but rather you are exercising your own free speech rights to make a determination of which speakers and which ideas are worthy of elevating on your platform. That is itself an exercise of free speech rights.
0: Mm, Yeah, I I completely agree. And um, now leaving the devil in the company of the uh, previous elephant, and I think they know each other well. So (laughs) let me return to some of the aspects of your book that are particularly important today, I believe. Uh, A first point that I would uh, want to make is that of the returning issue of the problem of vague law leading to arbitrary and discretionary behavior and power deployment. I think this cause and effect, which I think they are, are of fundamental importance for lawmakers today. And if we combine this with what uh, today the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben calls the unprecedented hypertrophy of law, then I think we are sure are in an awful lot of trouble. And unfortunately, I think that this has become all too true during this COVID-19 pandemic. I fear we are completely at the mercy of this double problematic today. And I, I don't have an answer to this problem and I might even be pushing it towards its end. But it gives a new importance, I think, to the word emergency that has been heard so often today and that is so connected to free speech would you agree here with me or am i a little bit too dystopian here?
1: no uh, unfortunately history confirms exactly what you've said christoph and, and the framers of the american constitution recognize that the greatest danger to liberty lies in times of of actual or perceived danger especially mm-hmm. when it comes from historically when it comes from foreign sources and and wars there's no coincidence that in the united states political rhetoric referred to the war on crime mm-hmm. and the war on terror and now you know the war on covid to mm-hmm. ramp up the sense of emergency and to make people in, including government officials, willing to grant more concentrated power. So in the United States, in the COVID emergency, so-called, we have, and it is an emergency, uh, but that has become a rationale for granting enormous power to single officials, the governors of the states and the executive branch of the federal government. We had both Donald Trump and now Joe Biden issuing executive order after. After executive order, uh, bypassing the legislative process entirely. This mm-hmm. is very concerning because once emergency powers are put in place, they very rarely disappear.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we we've had a number of, of podcasts here and where this topic comes over and over again. And and one of the late the last ones I had was with Sunetra Gupta, and where I was so surprised and so uh, scared at the same moment that she she had talked with members of of the Parliament in the UK. And where their only problem, how they thought they could deal with this pandemic was through the making of laws or better to making of of decrees. As if laws are the only means to engage with the citizenry. How do you think that is the only means? I I, I presume not to, but but I'm terrified when I see that laws or decrees are the only means how politicians think that they can act on or act upon or act with their citizenry.
1: Some humorist, I don't know who it is. I thought it was Mark Twain. It's not. Uh, But somebody said, when the only tool that you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. A nail. <laughs> so here we have legislators. What do they do? They make laws. Okay. And, and and often the law not only uh, causes adverse impacts in terms of liberty, as we've been talking about, and we haven't talked about privacy and other liberty violations that are entailed in these so-called ongoing emergencies, uh, but also those laws are 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 usually ineffective at dealing mm-hmm. at the with the underlying. Problem, And that is why I was so heartened that so many human rights activists in European countries that do censor hate speech are criticizing those laws, saying they're ineffective. I mean, we have to change the underlying attitudes. You don't do that by prosecuting somebody. We have to prosecute those who engage in actual discrimination and discriminatory violence. uh, But there hasn't been enough of that. As you know, uh, discriminatory violence is rampant across European countries. Uh, And and unfortunately, as we've seen, even pervading um, some military and police units in Germany. Very, very worrisome. So censoring speech then becomes a distraction. Speech laws become a distraction from more um, constructive, but much more difficult educational type approaches.
0: Yeah, I agree. And, and this actually brings me quite uh, uh, easily to, to my next question that, again in your book, but not just in your book, I think most uh, decent scholarship done on on free speech and, and how to tackle it with laws, shows over and over again that, for example, the American First Amendment, is much which is less restrictive than most European invasive restrictions of speech works much better. And time and again, the more invasive approach seems to lose out and especially seems to lose out to the things that it was supposed to protect. How come this message doesn't arrive at those who are making these laws?
1: I think because there, is, it's common sense in all countries among human beings that I'm using air quotes around common sense. <laughs> oh, if somebody says something hateful, of course that is going to lead to um, to hateful attitudes and actions on the part of listeners, which is very—it's kind of a monkey see, monkey do mm-hmm. logic, if you will—and um, and, and yet it's so. Easy to forget that the vast majority of people who hear even the most hateful speech. are, 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 if anything, they become galvanized to work against hatred and for equality and for desegregation and anti-discrimination. So, uh, But it's easy to scapegoat speech as a superficial quick fix to a deeper problem. And it takes a lot of money and taxes to uh, invest in education and the hard work of um, media literacy and civic engagement. Uh, it's much easier to not raise taxes, but Mm. increase uh, penalty of speech.
0: Mm, Yeah, I I agree. Now, To conclude, as as a member of an educational institution, uh, I would like to conclude by by addressing the very peculiar situation of speech and and in academia. Uh, More and more, it seems that the place where all should be possible to be discussed has become the place where less and less can be discussed and argued for or against. What is going on in today's university and what can be done?
1: It is a very serious problem. And I'm active in an organization that was founded in the United States several years ago to focus on this problem called the Heterodox Academy. Because uh, what the trend is for universities to be more and more tilted toward certain political preferences toward the left end of the political spectrum and leading to enormous self-censorship On the part of the vast majority of students and faculty members who even fear raising questions or making comments, uh, lest they be branded as insufficiently woke and insufficiently anti racist. And, And yet, public opinion polls show that the vast majority of people uh, do support both equality and free speech so we have to uh, empower them and give them a sense of self-confidence that they should speak out and there are curricular techniques that are being developed and uh, exercises that are being offered to help introduce that kind of heterodox thinking into the classroom. Let me just say for myself, Christoph, as as an educator, I use what is common in law schools in the United States, the so-called Socratic method. There we can throw in Socrates among all the other (laughs) philosophers. And there, um, students expect that they will have to articulate all plausible perspectives on all issues. And and using another one of your constructs, they're doing it as devil's advocates, right? (laughs) So they don't have to personally identify with those perspectives. They simply have to be able to articulate them and that serves two goals number one it develops their critical thinking and uh, expands their uh understanding of different perspectives and number two it frees them from the fear that they might be perceived uh misperceived as some kind of an ist or some kind of an ob.
0: Mm. okay so there is hope you think i do Okay, that's good. That's a, a lovely note to end with. So thank you very much, Nadine. Thanks for this very enlightening and conversation and let us hope that big tech does not censor us when we go online. As for the listeners, thanks again for being with us on Picked Voices. My name is Christoph van Houten and I hope you will be with us again soon for the following episode. Goodbye and thank you.
1: Thank you, Christoph.